This week, diamonds from the deep earth reveal it's damp down there. You may end up with a mass of water that's almost equivalent to the entire mass of water that's in all the world's oceans, and that's a pretty staggering volume. And do wolves really rule the ecosystem in Yellowstone Park? We look again at the role of top predators. It's a gorgeous uh, narrative and everybody loves it and I love it. So I was sort of disappointed to read some of these studies that have been coming out to show that maybe it isn't quite so simple. Plus how a 13th century cosmologist scooped the Big Bang Theory by hundreds of years. This is The Nature Podcast from March the 13th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. of the wolf. To some it may sound wild and romantic, to others it's terrifying, but to ecologists it sounds like good ecosystem management. For many years, top predators like wolves have been thought to govern the workings of entire ecosystems from the top down by triggering what are called trophic cascades. But the power of the wolf may not be as potent as ecologists once thought. Noah Baker spoke to freelance reporter Emma Maris, who's written a feature about the wolves of Yellowstone National Park in the US. Emma began by explaining what a top-down trophic cascade is. The idea of a top-down trophic cascade is that if you add or subtract a top predator from a, an ecosystem, there will be this ripple effect that will roll through the ecosystem and affect lots of different things. And am I right in thinking this has been quite a popular view or an accepted view within ecologists and conservation scientists? Yeah, um, since about the 1960s, when um, these top-down effects were first recorded, it's uh, been sort of a, a process of discovery, looking for them and finding them in all sorts of places around the earth. And one classic example that people have used concerns the wolves in Yellowstone Park. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Wolves used to be very common in the Yellowstone area. And then by about the late 1920s, they were all shot out because humans didn't like them there. But then we have since reconsidered that position. And in the early 90s, the wolves were put back, reintroduced from Canada. And they did very well, and they're thriving there now. Um, So the idea was that when the wolves returned they would change the number and behavior of their main prey, which is elk, and that these elk would then stop just browsing the heck out of all of the delicious broadleaf tree and shrub species in Yellowstone, like willows and aspen and cottonwood. These trees hadn't been doing well while the wolves were gone. They were not regenerating. They weren't growing to be full adult height. They weren't reproducing, and their cover was declining. So the idea was is that when you brought the wolves back on the landscape, they would scare the elk, and the elk would stay out of risky areas, and then in those risky areas, these trees could come back. That sounds like a really lovely effect, but it hasn't been quite as simple as that. It's a gorgeous uh, narrative, and everybody loves it, and I love it. So I was sort of disappointed to read some of these studies that have been coming out to show that maybe it isn't quite so simple. Maybe the aspen aren't coming back as vigorously as some of the earlier studies suggested. And in places where they are coming back, it may be just because there are fewer elk, not because the elk are behaving in a scared manner. And then once we say that it has to do with elk numbers and not elk behavior, then that brings in all sorts of other players because wolves aren't the only thing that reduce elk numbers. They are also eaten by bears. They're shot by people when they leave the park and their winter migrations. They 
die when there's drought and there's not enough for them to eat. So it just sort of opens it up into this much broader and more complex story. To me, when I think about an ecosystem, you know, we hear all the time about this incredibly complex interconnected web. It seems quite unsurprising that it would be more complicated than just sort of one species having this massive impact. Are scientists surprised to find this out? Yeah, I think that they are sort of surprised because the general idea has been that these top-down effects are quite strong. So while what you say is right, that everything affects everything and everything is connected, um, there has been this notion that... um, that top-down effects are generally strong enough to swamp other effects, meaning that even though all sorts of stuff is going on, the addition or removal of a top predator can usually override that noise and that that will be the clearest signal that we can see. Are these criticisms of top-down effects relatively new or have people been questioning these effects for a while? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think that in ecology, there are these debates that play out over decades. And sometimes I think hard feelings and egos may be getting in the way of, of scientific progress here. But the criticism of the trophic cascade idea in Yellowstone has all these papers have uh, come out since about 2010. Um, but the broader debate over how much top down versus bottom up versus middle versus every which way, that's a debate that ecology has been having for hundred years. Now, often in science, we see quite heated discussions between two sides of an argument. Why do you think people who support top-down controls are so reluctant to give them up? I don't know. I mean, that's a tough one. I, I don't have any definitive answers, but a good story is really hard to give up. The stories of these trophic cascades are beautiful and compelling. And when we come along and say, Oh, yes, there may be an effect, but it's weaker than we proposed, and there are all these other players, and we muddy the waters like this. It's just not as narratively satisfying. And as a storyteller, I can really relate to people who don't want to give up on a satisfying story. But that's why I think ecology is so endlessly fascinating, because every time you turn around, there's another twist to the story. It's always more complicated. It's not sort of daytime TV. It's more like a <laughs> Russian novel. <laughs> That was Emma Maris talking to Noah Baker. The feature is at nature.com slash news. Still to come, tweaking prostate cancer cells and electronics that shake to make power. That's in the research highlights. But first, to the deep. In Jules Verne's 1864 novel, Journey to the Centre of the Earth, the main characters haven't gone far on their voyage before they stumble upon a giant subterranean ocean, complete with prehistoric fighting reptiles. Aside from the ichthyosaurs, geologists suspect that Verne was partially right. The deep earth actually does harbour a lot of water. But it's so deep, hundreds of kilometres down, that it's impossible to find direct evidence. Until a messenger from the depths comes to the surface a messenger in the form of a diamond formed in the deep earth and shuttled upwards, perhaps by a violent eruption. These gems can reveal the environment of the deep earth. So are the depths a desert or a watery wonderland? I spoke to Graham Pearson, whose team has been examining the innards of a very rare diamond found in river deposits in western Brazil. Over the past 25 years or so, people have been speculating about how much water is trapped within the deep earth itself so most of the hydrosphere and exosphere where all the the water is uh, contained that that the people see on an everyday basis ultimately comes from the deep earth in one way or another 
via outgassing through volatiles that were accreted to the earth when the earth formed. People have speculated both on the basis of experiment and on the basis of remote sensing using techniques like geophysics that the water might be housed somewhere like the transition zone, this zone within the deep earth that's between 410 and and 670 kilometres deep. That's been the prime candidate for the location of a lot of water. Now, as you hinted at there, the main way of studying this question, of studying this transition zone hundreds of kilometres below the surface, is indirect. It's remote sensing or it's making kind of fake versions of these minerals, if you like, in the lab. But here you've got something a bit more direct than that. Yes. So one of my main research areas is is using diamonds to, to inform us about the composition and dynamics of of the deep earth and the beauty of diamonds is that they're really unique capsules of the deep earth because of the way that diamonds form and the way they're transported to the surface then they actually encapsulate tiny little tens of micron size fragments of those regions of the earth and they provide us with those samples at the earth's surface and tell me about the sample that's the star of your paper So this is a diamond that's one such diamond. It's one of these so-called ultra-deep diamonds. They look basically as though they've been to hell and back, so you could almost get the sense just by looking at these. They look very different from normal uh, lithoceric diamonds. It's a patchy brown colour that it has. Um, It's got a surface that looks rather like the surface of the moon. And this one, its inclusion is very unusual in itself, isn't it? And it can tell you about this question you had about water in the deepest depths of the Earth. Yes, it's the solid inclusions that the diamonds trap when they grow, the pieces of the the silicate earth that are special in this case. So our particular diamond, we were... My research student, John McNeil, was sifting through a a pile of these diamonds and he happened to notice an unusual inclusion, which was not actually the the mineral that he was searching for. And um, it turns out that that mineral is a very high-pressure form of the mineral that is commonly known as olivine called ringwoodite. It's one of the most common minerals in the earth, yet nobody had ever put their hands on a piece of ringwoodite. And so that actually then posed the immediate question, well, if it's ringwoodite, then does it have water or not? And so is the transition zone, according to this mineral ringwoodite, is it watery or not very watery? Well, what we found is that this our ringwoodite has significant water. It has about one and a half weight percent water. And as it happens, that agrees very well with other remote sensing techniques, techniques like magnetotelluric techniques. Those techniques have found that that there might be up to one weight percent locally and that the water distribution in the transition zone is patchy. And, And what we appear to have found is one of those wet spots, one of those oases. But you might, you know, you can't rule out the fact that it might just be a giant waterbed. And then how much water would there be if that was the case? Well, that's right. So the the end member scenario really is that if you apply the water content of our ringwoodite inclusion to the whole of the transition zone there, then you may end up with a mass of water that's almost equivalent to the entire mass of water that's in all the world's oceans. And that's a pretty staggering volume. And so I think the the, the next critical thing to do is to try and look for evidence of water in, in more of these ultra-deep diamonds and the, the, the inclusions within more ultra-deep diamonds to so try and establish how common 
that water signature may be. That's right. That was Graham Pearson at the University of Alberta in Canada. Now it's time for the research highlights read by Noah Baker. A device that generates electricity simply by being shaken about could one day charge your cell phone as you walk around. Researchers in the US have designed a compact, lightweight generator. It's made from a copper-plated disc that spins and rubs against a static base containing electrodes. The device can harvest mechanical energy from gentle wind, flowing tap water and normal body movements. The authors say it should be easy to scale up. Find that paper in Nature Communications. Prostate cancer cells make energy in a different way to normal cells, and tweaking this off-kilter metabolism could one day be a way to treat the disease. In the meantime, it could be a way of spotting aggressive forms of the cancer. A US-based team looked inside single cells in tissue samples from people with prostate cancer. A derivative of cholesterol called cholesterol ester accumulates inside the most aggressive prostate cancer cells. So the team used a drug that stops cholesterol ester from building up to treat mice bearing tumours. It shrank the tumours and slowed their growth. Read more in the journal Cell Metabolism. In 13th century England lived a man named Robert Grostest. He rose from humble roots to become the Bishop of Lincoln. But on top of writing about pastoral matters and theology, he liked to write about science too. In 1225, he penned a paper in Latin called De Luce, or On Light. 800 years later, a group of scholars have been examining a new translation of the manuscript. One of them is physicist Tom McLeish of Durham University. As Tom began reading the manuscript, he realised Grosteste was describing a very modern idea, the birth of the universe as an explosion of light. I say that light, by the infinite multiplication of itself, made uniformly in every direction, extends matter uniformly on all sides into a spherical form. The Big Bang theory as we know it only originated in the last hundred years, so naturally McLeish was shocked. Well, of course, I was expecting a very medieval, very theological, very metaphysical uh, treatise on light. But the first thing I read in the English translation opened my eyes. Grostest came to formulate his version of the Big Bang in a few steps. He was trying to work out how the universe was built from nothing. Like the ancients before him, philosophers like Aristotle, he started by thinking about matter. How could anything solid be built out of atoms that have no mass? What Grosteste says is that one shouldn't take for granted the solidity of matter. You know, the fact that we sit on our chairs and don't fall through them, the fact that matter has three dimensions is something that needs to be explained. Well, that's the first thing that amazed me because it is, it's a commonplace. We think it's ordinary, but actually there is a real issue with why matter is solid. In De Luce, Grosteste invokes light as the mass-giving substance. It fills in the gaps between atoms. What then does that mean for how the universe was built? One of Aristotle's ideas around, around the cosmos was that the universe had always been that there was never a beginning. Grosteste, of course, 
is a Christian thinker. Um, and so he knows that the universe does have a beginning. So the task that his theology, if you like, puts to his science is that he needs to accommodate an account of how this cosmos could come to be. The clue he picks up from Genesis is that God created light early on. And he then makes this extraordinary leap and says, OK, if that can be done with ordinary matter, then it could be done with the universe as a whole. So light, by its nature infinitely multiplying itself everywhere and stretching uniformly in every direction, at the beginning of time, extended matter, drawing it out along with itself into a mass the size of the world machine. Grostes may have got the mechanism a little wrong. Light doesn't really pull matter along with it. Rather, light exerts a push on matter while also contributing to the universe's gravitational pull. But the outcome still sounds like a big bang. Yes, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> so I asked McLeish, who's co-authored a comment piece this week, just how closely Grostes' idea resembles the modern-day Big Bang theory. There are many similarities. The first thing, of course, is that Grostes' universe starts with a Big Bang. It is indeed the entire universe that expands under the force of light. The later stages of his universe condense out of that Big Bang. What he's saying is that the structures one observes in the sky today can be explained as consequences or leftovers of the events in the early universe. And that idea is a very, very modern one. To see how accurate Guastest's idea was by modern standards, Tom's team transformed the medieval manuscript into a computer model. The project brought together physicists, cosmologists, Latinists and medieval historians to translate the manuscript from Latin into English and then crunch Guastest's medieval maths. What's impressed us about Grostest is he's clearly brilliant, he's clearly a genius, and his theory is clearly the best thing one could possibly do given the data available to him at the time. It's shown us that, in some ways, he was right. It is possible to find examples of particular values of initial density and matter-light coupling and transparency and so forth that do indeed give rise to solar systems that look rather like the medievalists and the ancients thought ours looked like. So there's evidently fruit to be found in art-science collaborations. For Tom, one of the most exciting advantages of mixing disciplines was the new science that came from a dusty old manuscript. For every manuscript we look at, of course, the group is producing a new edition, a new translation and a new commentary on the text. What we didn't expect is that every one of these medieval science texts we look at, we, it gives us an idea to do some new science. Today, Grostes' cosmology might be a museum piece, but looking back to this treatise on light from the Dark Ages has left Tom and his colleagues pondering what their successors might say in the future. It's caused us to wonder, Richard Bauer put this beautifully, what will people be saying in 800 years' time about our theories of cosmology, all this dark energy and dark matter stuff, tut, 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 didn't they know better, what ridiculous assumptions they were making. So it's made us critically aware of how sensitive our science is, not only to what we know, but what we don't know and still has to be discovered. That was Tom McLeish of Durham University. He and his team have written a comment piece about their work on Deluque, available at nature.com slash nature. Thank you to John Howes, the voice of Grostest in translation. The music was from the International Music Score Library Project.
News time now and joining me, not one, but two of nature's finest. Here in the studio, reporter Lizzie Gibney and on the phone, assistant US news editor Lauren Morello. Welcome to both. Now, Lauren, to you first. The main story this week is about money, specifically President Obama's budget request, which came out last week. In general terms, how were Congress feeling about this budget request? Congress does not like it, and scientists here in the U.S. don't seem to like it. The president puts a a budget request out to Congress every year, and it's really more of a suggestion of his priorities. And scientists were hoping that Obama would uh, show them support by suggesting a big increase for science funding. Um, And what he actually proposed is flat funding for the big three research agencies, the National Institutes of Health, NASA and the National Science Foundation, um, and that's a disappointment. So although the sequestration, I suppose, is officially over, uh, it still doesn't look great just to have these budgets be flat. But, but it's not a cut. I mean, isn't that cause for some mild celebration? In December, when Congress agreed to end sequestration, scientists cheered. But the budget that was actually introduced last week proposes small increases for these major agencies that are outpaced by inflation. So, um, in effect, if this budget is approved, they'll be losing money. And did Obama um, have any specific ideas or touch points in, in the budget as pertains to science? You know, there were no major new proposals this year. Last year, he proposed having NASA capture an asteroid and tow it to the moon for astronauts to visit and study. I mean, he proposed a big brain mapping initiative. And while there's funding in his proposal this year to continue those two new projects, uh, there are no big, splashy new proposals, which are usually a part of the president's budget request each year. And something that Nature News looks forward to reporting on. I remember the towing asteroid thing uh, very clearly. And of course, the brain initiative. Now, uh, over on the other side of the world, uh, just briefly, there's a story as well in the news section that looks at China's budget. Yes, China's new premier has put out his first budget, um, and it seems like a pretty big win for science. Um, It proposes almost a 9% increase for science and technology. And how does that compare with the slightly deflating US situation? Well, overall, spending on science in China is uh, still dwarfed by the US budget for those activities, And science funded by the Chinese government is still mostly applied research, whereas in the U.S. there's still pretty significant spending on basic research. That said, China's proposing a big increase, which is much different than the story here in the States. Okay, And uh, Lizzie, turning to you for something quite different now, you've written a story this week looking at claims that dark matter killed the dinosaurs, or have I oversold that? That's that's pretty much what it is. It's quite a speculative idea, but I think it's a really interesting one. Now, this kind of goes back about 30 years. It was quite fashionable back then to um, think that there might be some kind of periodicity in the crater record, uh, so that we'd go through periods when the Earth would be bombarded by comets. And there are a few explanations for this, some of which do sound quite ludicrous, things like that there's a companion star to the sun that we've never seen that swooshes round in elliptical orbit and occasionally disrupts the comets in the Oort cloud, which are just outside the solar system, and that that obviously ends up disrupting the inner solar system and perhaps leads to mass extinctions on Earth. Uh, Another slightly more credible idea was to do with the way that the sun travels through the Milky Way. 
The Milky Way is a spiral galaxy, like a flattened disk, and as the Earth goes around it, it sort of bobs up and down. And uh, as it moves through the central plane of the galaxy, the idea is there would be more gravity there that would cause a push and pull on the Oort cloud and perhaps again send a rain of comets down onto Earth. This rain of comets, or asteroids at least, I suppose we should say, is kind of one of the leading theories for why dinosaurs might have gone extinct and other mass extinctions might have been caused. Exactly, that's it. Um, so that's so that was one idea, and that had kind of lain dormant for a, for a few years. Um, and then we come smack bang to today, and uh, there's a new theory about the nature of dark matter, which uh, came from Lisa Randall and Matthew Rees and some of their colleagues at Harvard University. And this came after last year, the Fermi Gamma Ray Telescope found a signal coming from the centre of the galaxy, which we couldn't really explain, but which looked a bit like it could be dark matter annihilation. But now our normal explanations about the nature of dark matter are that it's kind of rather cold, collisionless, doesn't really interact. Um, But what they suggested was it was more like normal matter. It would form into a disk and that would explain the results from Fermi. What they had a great idea to do was to put these two things together. So somehow this dark matter disk is, isn't a cold and inert uh, disk that isn't doing anything, but it is interacting in some way with the sun as it travels around, and that could explain this periodicity you were talking about. It would have enough of a gravitational pull to have the kind of effect on the comets that would give a periodicity of around, say, 35 million years. Now, that might be exciting to physicists, this theory. Theoretical physicists, uh, they don't need much evidence to do their work, do they? Uh, But how do people who've maybe studied mass extinctions on Earth feel about this? Well, that's exactly the problem, really. The evidence, as they say in the paper, for there being this 35 million year periodicity is not great. It depends on what age of craters you're looking at, what size they are. And obviously, we only have a certain number of data points and you can't magically create some more. There are only as many craters as there are. Um, The problem is whenever we look through that record, if you look hard enough, you will always find some kind of periodicity. It's called the look elsewhere problem. You look hard enough, you'll find something. But what they have tried to do in this paper is to kind of turn the problem on its head. And they've said, well, if we put as much um, real data we have about the galaxy into a model, uh, our dark matter model, and then we come up with a prediction of the periodicity, and their model comes out with this 35 million years. They then say, well, if we, if we compare that with the crater record, what's a better fit, our model or a model where there is a constant or random cratering of the Earth? And they find that their model fits better with a likelihood of about three to one. So statistically, that's very, very little, but it's, it's something. Well, Lizzie, you've done the unthinkable. You've linked dark matter with paleontology. I just never thought I'd hear that happen. Uh, So thank you to you in the studio and to Lauren on the phone. You can find those stories and more at nature.com slash news. That's it from us this week. Tune in next time when we'll be finding out why scientists are going to acting class. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith.